Uh, it's Adrian Hernandez. I'll be the uh, moderator today. And, and today we're going to um, hear from Raleigh, who's uh, here, a professor of psychiatry and medicine at Duke, and he's going to talk about AI and the future of psychiatry. There's a lot of attention around artificial intelligence, uh, seeing patterns that um, perhaps have not been seen before, and then uh, questions are how could you act on them. So, uh, Morali, thanks for joining us, and I'll turn it over to you. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to be uh, on this call and uh, uh, really eager to share uh, my thoughts and equally eager to hear from uh, people on the call because I think some of the world's leading experts in uh, pragmatic clinical trials, uh, I believe, are part of the various working groups of the NIH collaboratory. So uh, that's exactly what we need uh, in psychiatry. So just uh, I hope everyone can see my screen and can hear me. Um, so these are my disclosures. Um, I've uh, received grants and I've served as an advisor to a number of companies in the uh, technology and the health space. So my objectives um, are fivefold today. Uh, I'm going to share some very brief historical perspectives. Uh, talk about unmet needs in psychiatry that I think everyone is familiar with, so I'm going to keep that very brief. Um, I'm going to present some new surveys um, that uh, we have been involved with to get the perspectives of end users and how they think about future technologies. Uh, I'm going to review uh, the evidence base and present some uh, 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 case studies. And then I'm going to discuss the ethical framework uh, within which I, I hope that uh, future technologies uh, will be embedded. So uh, I think many people on this call uh, probably have heard of ELISA. Uh, in 1966, this was the first natural language uh, program slash chatbot that was developed. And it's interesting that uh, it was uh, modeled on a psychotherapist. Uh, uh, this was done in MIT's uh, computer science lab. So the, sort of the links between psychiatry and the earliest forms of AI go back almost 50 years. And if you look at the kinds of conversations that Eliza was able to have, you can see it in that black box. Uh, Eliza says, uh, what's your name, dear? And Amit, I believe, who was a graduate student then, says, hey, I'm Eliza. Uh, uh, Eliza says, hey, I'm Eliza. What do you want to talk about? Amit goes, can I talk about my problem? Eliza says, sure. Ahmed says, due to ongoing exams in college, I have a lot of stress. And Eliza goes, please relax a little and sleep well. And Ahmed goes, thanks for your advice. Uh, and Eliza says, no mention, bye-bye, and keep in touch. So this sounds incredibly realistic, but what most people didn't realize was that Eliza was developed as a parody. It was never intended to be an actual therapist, but it caught on and became incredibly popular. In fact, when the scientist who developed it, Joseph uh, Weizenbaum, uh, released it to the non-technical staff at the MIT AI lab, his secretaries and many of the non-technical members of the department thought the machine was actually a real therapist and spent hours uh, talking to it about their personal stuff. And when Weizenbaum actually informed his secretary that he had access to the logs of all their conversations, she got furious, uh, saying that this was an invasion of privacy. And so at the end result, actually, uh, Weizenbaum came away from this experiment bitterly critical about these kinds of sort of uh, machine-human interactions. And he was actually worried that 
These programs could deceive human people, especially naive users, into revealing personal information uh, and mislead them uh, into thinking that its efficacy was a lot greater than what it was. So fast forward, you know, 50 years, obviously a lot has happened in both the AI fields and in the mental health field. Interestingly, it was around the time of ELISA that the first edition of the DSM, Psychiatric Bible, was released. Uh, since then, you know, we've sort of gone now to where uh, I think mental health is a, if not the leading problem, it's one of the two or three top problems in the world uh, in terms of morbidity and mortality and something like 400 million people. Suicide is the number two cause of death in youth. Uh, I think everyone knows about the opioid crisis. Uh, the projections are that uh, mental health will cost the worldwide economy something like $16 trillion by 2030. So I call this the trillion dollar stigma because stigma is persistent. We've not been able to shake it. Low funding, lack of parity with physical health and uh, at insurance company levels and at uh, care levels is still segregated. Very poor access to care. We still don't take into account social determinants of health as much as we should because in some ways I think in psychiatry the social determinants, things like violence, uh, poverty, homelessness, all of these have huge, huge impact on the state of a person's mind. And last but not least, uh, the causes at a biological level, genetic level, brain imaging level, uh, really we, we're in dire need of deep phenotyping. It affects all of us, and that's what the slide shows on the right-hand side. Um, you know, people either publicly acknowledge their fight with depression or uh, who have ended their lives tragically due to suicide. Now, there's more to it. Um, so the DSM-5 came out a few years ago. It is the latest iteration of the diagnostic manual. It actually became a New York Times bestseller. I don't know if that's a good or bad thing to have a psychiatric textbook become a New York Times bestseller. But the reason I'm showing this slide is actually for the right-hand side. Before they launched the book, they did initial field trials to look at the reliability of diagnosis across practitioners in the field. And so what you're seeing are the kappa statistics for reliability. And uh, you can see the various major uh, disorders listed there. And I want to sort of turn your attention to some of those that are marked in yellow. Uh, because the ones in green have high reliability, and these are things like uh, dementia, major neurocognitive disorder, PTSD, so very high uh, reliability. If you go lower, low down in the yellow, you'll see major depressive disorder, so common, affecting something like two to 300 million people worldwide. The reliability is like 0.28. Generalized anxiety disorder, the reliability is 0.20. Even something that seems obvious, like alcohol use disorder, the reliability is like close to chance, 0.40. And in children, um, the reliability is even lower with the exception of autism. So again, this is very worrisome. It implies that we need standardized ways of diagnosing because if you don't standardize the diagnosis, then everything downstream, the treatment, the prognosis, everything is impacted by the accuracy of the diagnosis. So what makes all of this problem even more worse is the acute shortage of psychiatrists. So uh, something like 77% of U.S. counties, all counties in the U.S., um, uh, lack uh, an adequate number of psychiatrists. 
Uh, and the problem outside the U.S. is even more dire. I think the U.S. has 28,000 psychiatrists in India, which has a population of something like 1.3 billion. There's only about something between five to five to 8,000 psychiatrists. So incredibly dire shortage. So we are practicing essentially what is shallow medicine. Long appointment times, sessions last only 15 minutes, very little face time. Uh, so it's almost like become a conveyor belt approach to psychiatry. And there's also a big increase in provider burnout. If you ask psychiatrists, this is a, one of the leading causes of uh, burnout uh, in psychiatric practice. Interestingly, around the same time um, that DSM-5 came out, um, you know, CBS and Vanity Fair, I don't usually present Vanity Fair data in a scientific grand rounds, but I think it's interesting, and they did a good job of it because it was fairly representative, random sample of the U.S. population, and they asked which field would benefit the most from AI, and interestingly, 44% said medicine. And then, you know, followed by other things like military use, automobile, self-driving cars, uh, psychiatry, only 3%, which I thought was very interesting. Either they know something that we as physicians and clinicians and scientists on this call don't know, or they just need to be educated. Um, and so this is something um, I think it's important. Unfortunately, it's uh, not true, as I'm going to show you from some subsequent slides. So. There have been fundamental shifts in medicine and data science over the last 50 years. Uh, everything from neuroscience, genomics, smartphones, sensors, the growth of uh, advances in various AI techniques. And fortunately, all of these have benefited psychiatry in a tremendous, tremendous way, as I'm going to show you. Um, so this is one example that I'm going to show you uh, that shows how all of these different technologies, not genomics, but all of the sensor technology, the data mining technology, everything we know from uh, human-patient uh, interactions, all of this has combined into a virtual therapist that has been created at the University of Southern California that they are calling as a sim sensei. So a sensei, as you know, is a sort of a master, a martial arts master like Bruce Lee, et cetera, uh, and sim is for simulation. But the beautiful thing about the SimSensei is it actually is able to not only have human-like gestures, but is able to integrate multi-sensory information from the client that is sitting across from the avatar. And I'm going to show you a video clip uh, just to illustrate how this um, avatar works. Hi, I'm Ellie. Thanks for coming in today. I was created to talk to people in a safe and secure environment. I'm not a therapist, but I'm here to learn about people and would love to learn about you. I'll ask a few questions to get us started. And please feel free to tell me anything. Your answers are totally confidential. Are you okay with this? Yes. So, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. That's good. Where are you from originally? I'm from Los Angeles. Oh, I'm from LA myself. When was the last time you felt really happy? Uh, when was the last time? Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think um, people get the feel that 
this is really an incredible fusion of many different technologies combined with sensor information and really uh, uh, as almost as human-like as a therapist can get. These are still early days, and later on in the talk, I'm going to show you how uh, this kind of technology uh, might prove beneficial. So the combination of all of these factors, you know, the dire sort of state of mental health, the large treatment and diagnostic gaps, and the advances in technology sort of made us put out this white paper uh, about a month ago. Uh, so the World Economic Forum has a council called the Global Future Council on Neurotechnology that I happen to co-chair. And we decided that it was important to put out a call to action saying it's time for us to begin to develop the evidence to do pragmatic clinical trials and to leverage and scale technologies to fill in these large gaps uh, in the mental health system. And because it's the World Economic Forum, we were also very interested in developing countries like India, Africa, and other places, and not just uh, rich countries like the U.S. So one of the key proposals uh, that we came out um, uh, in this particular document was that I think it was very useful for us to think about the evidence development of technologies in the same analogies as we develop drugs. So if you look at the left-hand side of this slide, uh, I've shown you sort of four phases, and these would be kind of the four phases that we use in clinical drug development, except here in phase one, you probably do some end-user interviews, uh, you assess the clinical utility, patient acceptance, et cetera. Uh, you sort of do some, you make sure that the design of the product itself embeds responsible practices. And we've also developed a checklist uh, that can guide developers of new technologies to see if they meet all of the transparency and ethical requirements for what would be required right at the get-go. And then you do phase two trials where you're refining the IT system to optimize utility. And then phase three, you demonstrate the utility in real-world studies. And then using the data, you do sort of iterative uh, optimization of the algorithms, and then you do prospective clinical validation. And then we also sort of laid out some ground rules for what could be a good ethical framework, such as a governance structure, what kind of nimble regulation should, should there be to keep up with rapidly advancing technology, uh, and how do you adopt a test and learn uh, approach uh, in a way that uh, allows continual uh, assessment and improvement. So I'm going to share with you a couple of the things. So the first phase one, I said it's important to get feedback from end users, because if you don't get feedback from end users, then even the smartest technology can fail. And oftentimes, you know, people develop these technologies in isolation in a big tech company, and they, they think, you know, it's our way or the highway, and they don't really listen to anybody. I had a call, actually, with a scientist from a very, very large tech company just a couple of days ago who showed me some pilot results of a deep digital phenotyping, and I said this was the wrong design, the wrong sort of control group, and, and they got very upset, and I'm probably never going to hear from them again. So how do patients view technology? So this was a survey done by NAMI of 457 patients with schizophrenia. And this is very important because schizophrenia patients typically low functioning. They tend to not be as well off. They tend to sometimes be homeless. They tend to live in shelters. So if we want technology to benefit chronic mentally ill people who are most in need, it has to work for them. And surprisingly, at least this survey was done in the US. It, this is good news. 90% of patients 
report having access to a PC, 54% report having access to a smartphone, and 60% have access to two or more devices. So that's actually really good news for integration of technology into real-world care. And they were also very optimistic. Unlike the Vanity Fair poll that I showed you, it said, will technology help with recovery? Two-thirds of schizophrenia patients anticipate that technology will become a bigger part of their recovery in the future. So that's great. That means they are willing to work with technology to monitor their symptoms, uh, uh, to talk to their doctors, to seek help, et cetera. How about psychiatrists? You know, doctors are often the last, you know, uh, many, many technologies sort of fail because uh, they never get integrated into a medical practice. So this was a survey that um, um, we did with CERMO and a colleague at Harvard, Dr. Charlotte Lees. So CERMO, as many of you may know on the call, is a large physician uh, social networking platform, and it's also one of the largest physician survey platforms. And the nice thing about this is all of the physicians are verified physicians on the network, and they have something like 800,000 physicians in over 100 countries. So this was an online survey that we did about three months ago. 791 psychiatrists in 22 countries, broad age range, about a third of them under the age of 45, uh, about a third in private practice, about 50% uh, working in public clinics, and about 13% in academia. So they represented doctors from North America, South America, uh, Northern Europe, Southern Europe, Russia, China, Brazil, India. So, so really very representative of the global uh, sample. So here were some of the questions we asked them. In 25 years, in your opinion, what is the likely impact of artificial intelligence machine learning on the work of psychiatrists? It's kind of interesting. About 6.7% said no influence at all. So I'd like to know who these people are. Um, about 42% said minimal influence. And about half, you know, 47.41 plus 3.79 said it will be either moderate or extreme influence. So one in two psychiatrists feel that their jobs will change substantively, which I think is probably very similar to what you would get from other physician um, surveys, except maybe radiology or pathology. And this was also an interesting sort of uh, question. It says, do you believe the benefits of artificial intelligence machine learning to the field of psychiatry will outweigh the possible risks or harms? And 36% said yes. 40% were uncertain. So that, to me, is an interesting finding. And when we dug down into this data, what we found was that more women psychiatrists and more US-based psychiatrists were uncertain than male psychiatrists or psychiatrists in the rest of the world. And we don't exactly know the reasons why, but it could be possibly related to all the news, could be because our health systems, uh, you know, our, the US system in general, data privacy laws are not as strict as they are in Europe and some other places in the world, and there could be other reasons uh, behind that. Then we asked them another very interesting question, which is, is psychiatry ready for self-driving cars? In other words, what is the likelihood that future technology will be able to replace a human doctor to perform these tasks as well or better than an average psychiatrist? So we laid out 10 tasks and we asked them, which of these tasks do you think a machine will do better or equally well as a psychiatrist? 
And out of, these were 10 very traditional tasks, you know, uh, mental status exam, assessment for suicidality, assessment for homicidality, uh, you know, uh, synthesizing information for diagnosis, documentation, empathetic care, etc. Out of these 10 tasks, there were only two tasks where uh, the psychiatrist thought a machine could do as well uh, as the average psychiatrist. And the two were, one was uh, documentation, uh, and then the second was synthesized information uh, to reach a diagnosis. So again, I think both are very interesting answers. Uh, empathetic care, on the other hand, if you see it went the other way, where 83% of psychiatrists felt in the next 25 years, a machine is never going to be able to provide empathetic care. So it's very interesting. It remains to be seen, of course, if these doctors are going to be proven right or wrong. But this is important because this is the opinion of the end users who are going to be the ones that are uh, going to decide whether or not the technology is going to be integrated into their care, care practice. And then there were a bunch of other comments by psychiatrists about how AI could benefit them. Uh, it said it could eliminate human error, the patient may answer more truthfully to AI and accept the encouragement support more objectively, uh, making standardized plans, standardized assessments, less bias, can use big data. It's interesting that they say AI has less bias than physicians. Most people who talk about AI now are saying AI is biased by the people who program it, but we often forget the biases that are inherent in each physician. And they also said, you know, it could provide practical guidance for beginner psychiatrists. It will be a great benefit to scale uh, care in areas where there's a shortage. And it could elucidate etiologies or brain diseases that are currently opaque to us. They also pointed out a bunch of risks, uh, lack of empathy. It won't be able to assess the patient's mental status comprehensively, and that may lead to errors. There is a possibility that the process could turn into a black box. There is a stigma associated with mental health, and we're not sure how talking to an AI would help. Less privacy, more fatalism. Administrators may use AI to further increase psychiatrist patient loads. If we're seeing 30 patients today, maybe they'll want us to see 100 patients, and that will lead to even more burnout. Risk of worsening dehumanization. Maybe patients will become psychotic if they're like exposed to an avatar. Physicians will forsake creative thinking. So these are all important comments that we need to keep in mind when we are designing trials and capturing SAEs, et cetera, because th these are what uh, uh, you know, doctors are worried about. Okay, so let's uh, move on to talk about the actual evidence. I mentioned earlier on, uh, I showed you this beautiful video of the SimSci, and there's also a number of doctors pointed out about stigma. So the question here is, um, can actually AI, ML embedded sort of autonomous technologies, such as a virtual human interviewer, could that actually reduce the stigma or would it worsen the stigma? And so this is a very important question. Uh, and so uh, USC, the University of Southern California, again, uh, Gail Lucas and others have been at the forefront of this. So this is a small pilot study that she did, um, 29 uh, women who had come back after a year of deployment in Afghanistan. And then they were asked to fill out these post-deployment questionnaires about PTSD. And then they did it three ways. They filled out the regular sort of post-deployment military forms, which are not anonymous, which get integrated into the health record. The second, they filled out an anonymous uh, form. And the third is that they spoke to a virtual avatar. So here's their findings. So the 
the vertical axis of this graph shows the number of PTSD symptoms that they reported. Now remember, each one of these people did all three versions of the reporting. So the PDHA is the non-anonymous standardized post-deployment questionnaire, and they, it turns out that they reported the fewest number of symptoms when they knew that it was not anonymous. To the anonymized questionnaire, they reported slightly more symptoms, but it was not significantly different. But with the virtual health interviewer, they actually reported a lot more symptoms. This suggests two things. One is that it's not enough to just have an anonymous questionnaire. Uh, there also needs to be someone who's non-judgmental, and perhaps there is an alliance between the person and the human avatar uh, that leads them to perhaps confide more. And so that's actually a good sign if this is replicated in bigger studies across multiple settings and in the real world in a pragmatic trial, then that's good news for stigma because a lot of people underreport their symptoms. And as I already said, stigma is a trillion, this is the trillion dollar stigma. So how about early detection? I think um, uh, a number of the physicians said they, their hope is that it could synthesize information, especially uh, information that is sort of uh, multidimensional information uh, across multiple sort of categories that's very hard for a human being to synthesize. Uh, could a machine somehow do this better? And could it come up with a more accurate diagnosis or even an earlier diagnosis. It's very important to diagnose, say, a schizophrenic person before they have a full outbreak, or very early, uh, important to diagnose, say, a dementia person when they are in the preclinical stages. So this was uh, um, a paper that um, uh, our group published uh, about uh, two years ago. Uh, we took a group of about 500 people who are at risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. They were having mild cognitive problems. Uh, we integrated and analyzed more than 30 variables uh, from their medical records uh, and from the database. These were things like demographics, cognitive testing, uh, activities of daily living, as well as biomarkers like MRI variables, amyloid and tau PET scans, FDG PET scans, and we put them through a multi-layer uh, multi clustering algorithm. It was an unbiased clustering algorithm, unsupervised. And then we had a second data set that was identical uh, for validation. So here's what the algorithm came up with. It came, it came up with two clusters. Um, one was a cluster of very slow decliners who over a five-year follow-up showed virtually no decline at all. And then a second cluster of rapid decliners who declined at a five-fold greater rate and went on to develop dementia. And then a third cluster of people could not be clustered. So these were like uh, the, the, the gray area where people who were sort of heterogeneous and this particular clustering algorithm could not cluster it. And then we also sort of tried to see what were the variables that went into the algorithm and then in the paper we also reported uh, some of the key variables that could help differentiate. Uh, so it was not a black box, we were able to sort of untangle the black box and identify the key contributing variables. So how about suicide? I think uh, in the poll of doctors, um, I think doctors were not too optimistic that AIML could uh, replace them uh, in the assessment uh, of suicide. But let's see where we are with suicide. You know, as I mentioned, suicide is the second leading cause of death amongst youth. Uh, if anything, suicide rates have either not changed or are going up a little bit. Uh, and meta-analysis, of like the last 40 years of research 
has shown that we're not very good. Um, you know, our traditional methods of assessing suicide, you know, for example, does the person have comorbid substance abuse? Is the person a male? Do you have a gun at home? Uh, have you attempted suicide before? These are good individually, but the vast majority of high-risk patients do not die from suicide. And 50% of suicides tend to be from lower risk categories. So that's a problem. And the VA, for example, now has come up with an algorithm. Uh, it's called REACH-VET, where they identify those at statistically elevated risk and they're providing preemptive care. And they've identified 30,000 such veterans and this program is being scaled over 28 sites. They don't yet have outcomes that they have shared with me. But um, I've talked to someone who said, well, their preliminary outcomes, the veterans seem to be accepting it, but they don't yet have any definitive outcomes. So it remains to be seen if their algorithm is good or not. One of the best studies that I've seen in this area uh, came from Greg Simon and colleagues. Uh, they have a consortium called the Mental Health Research Consortium across seven centers, and they analyzed three million patients. Um, and these three million patients um, uh, over a span of time had had 24,133 suicide attempts and a thousand of them had actually killed themselves. So they were able to ex put together something like 90 or 100 variables from the medical record uh, and they were able to uh, put together a, a program, a multivariate sort of uh, risk factor program that had a very high accuracy for predicting uh, who was going to attempt suicide. Uh, at 90 days. And I think the plan is that over the next year or two, they're going to try to validate it further and try to see if they can integrate it uh, into these health systems. So it remains to be seen. It's still a work in progress, but it shows you that there is information that is beyond the factors that we traditionally consider uh, in an emergency room uh, that may provide information on identifying people at risk for suicide. How about can AIML predict a future depression episode, which is sort of similar to, I guess, a suicide to some extent. Uh, and so this is a, a, a pretty impressive paper that came out about two months ago where they trained a, a deep learning algorithm to predict future depression in a very large population study called the Enhanced Study. And they trained the algorithm on data collected from 2009 to 2013, and they showed that the algorithm could predict future suicides between 2013 and 2014, which is what is shown on the left side. And then they used that same algorithm developed in the U.S. to see if it could predict future depression in Korea. So an algorithm developed in one country to see if it can be uh, replicated in a second country. And they got some degree of replication, but not the level that they were hoped for. The area under the curve was a lot lower, again, suggesting that the, they're deeply cultural factors. And so in each country, the algorithm has to be developed, perhaps uh, in different geographic regions that are specific. So an algorithm developed in, in one place may not work in another place. And so that's a very important learning. So how is AI being used in the real world? I would say this is one of the, uh, perhaps the, the largest scale experiments that's going on. Crisis Text Line is a crisis counseling center, and you can send text messages to them if you're in a crisis. You can text connect to this number anywhere in the US, anytime about any type of crisis. 24-7 coverage, 
You can use an SMS message or Facebook Messenger. And then instantly, when, depending on what you write in your text message, there is an AI that analyzes the words. And you can see in this graph, it analyzes and assigns a risk score for every word in your text message. And it automatically escalates the risk, depending on the kind of words that you put in. And you can see here, for example, this person said, every day I put a gun to my head, but never really pulled the trigger. So based on that, you can see the risk is escalating. And then it triages at three different levels, and they're able to serve something like 95% of their people under five minutes if it deems them to be high risk. So they're using AI to triage and separate the high risk from the low risk, but the actual treatment is provided by a counselor. And to date, uh, something like 105 million messages uh, 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 sent by several millions of people across the U.S. Uh, have really um, uh, used the service. And more important, they have created a really amazing database of vocabulary that is very specific to crisis situations. And this database, they have actually de-identified it and put it out there for researchers to analyze. And you can look at different word combinations and see which word combinations predict suicide. And what they're saying here is that it's not the traditional words you think about, such as suicide or shooting, that is really as predictive in their um, uh, data analysis, but it's much more some of the things that you see on the right-hand side, such as bridge or Tylenol or ibuprofen or EMS. They're finding those words apparently convey higher actual risk in the real world. So again, this is the kind of data that needs to be vetted independently, needs to be published, but these are their early findings. Okay, how about apps? I think um, the app world is sort of, um, uh, you know, the World Wide Web of confusion. There are like 10,000 apps out there. It's hard for anyone to tell which one is proven, which one is not. There are very few that have gone through very rigorous validation uh, or FDA approval. The vast majority of apps have basically just pilot data. Uh, but here is one meta-analysis of apps for smartphone apps for anxiety and smartphone apps for depression. Many of them have embedded AI, but I will set that aside for now. We're just trying to see do these apps even work. A lot of them are therapy apps, meditation, cognitive behavior therapy, so very simple, uh, straightforward approach. The good news is the existing RCTs suggest that there is promise, uh, both in anxiety disorders and in depression, but very few have been the kind of large, pragmatic, real-world studies uh, that we see in, say, cardiology or uh, uh, in, in, in other fields. How about uh, child psychiatry? Uh, so autism is one area where there has been a tremendous amount of work. Duke was one of the first, if not the first, to release an autism app. And they're doing some very good work in terms of facial recognition and other kinds of phenotyping. This is the first RCT of a variable digital intervention that is AI embedded uh, for improving socialization in children with autism. So they wear this sort of uh, Google Glass that's embedded with, it gives them cues on social and emotional um, sort of cues that are almost uh, therapeutic in some sense. And then the child is asked to do this exercise with these glasses uh, for 20 minutes, three or four times a day. And they found uh, substantial improvement in the group that was randomized to this digital intervention 
versus the group getting usual behavior therapy. So the effect sizes were moderate to large, uh, again, suggesting that this is a highly promising uh, intervention. Now, of course, not every digital intervention works. I don't want to leave this uh, impression. This is a large randomized trial uh, called the MONARCH trial, which was a, um, a trial of smartphone-based monitoring in bipolar disorder. Uh, and what they found was um, there was no added utility of a smartphone-based uh, phenotyping or monitoring uh, in bipolar disorder. If anything, uh, uh, things went in, uh, the intervention group had a higher risk of depressive episodes. Again, it's not sure if that's causal or just incidental, but there was really no efficacy for smartphone-based monitoring on illness activity in bipolar disorder. So what do we really need at this point? This is my um, second last slide. I think what we need are large pragmatic trials, trials that um, really um, take into account the key clinical issues uh, that we need help with. And I think those come out from the survey that I pointed out. Uh, and I think we need trials that really are are, are done in much the same way that we would do a drug trial in the sense very solid outcomes and then replicated, but at the same time recognizing that technology is evolving, uh, we should allow some degree of iteration. You know, this whole sort of concept of building the airplane while you fly it, I'm not sure that's a good idea in mental health, uh, because if something doesn't work, uh, then the outcomes can be very tragic. So this is an example of a very large public-private uh, partnership called RADAR, where um, they're looking to see whether smartphones and wearables could change the care of people with recurrent depression. So this is jointly led by 24 organizations in Europe and US and is recruiting a large sample size and it's going to monitor them over years uh, for something like five years to see how deep phenotyping uh, correlates with uh, disease progression. So I'm just going to end with one short video that's about a minute or so. Uh, earlier, we saw this uh, slide from Vanity Fair uh, suggesting that a lot of people think AI may not help psychiatry. Maybe there is some need for public outreach and public education. So the council uh, that I'm part of at the World Economic Forum, we produced a short video um, just to sort of distribute to the public and to convey the message for why it's so important uh, to put effort in this area. So and I'll show you the short video for a minute, and then I will finish after that. We are in the midst of a global mental health crisis. One in four people suffer from mental distress. There's a huge stigma that often holds people back from seeking help when they need it most. If they do reach out for help, they often aren't able to get the support they need. And if they do, it's often too little too late. Meet AJ. He suffers from depression. And without being able to spot when something was wrong or being able to access effective care at the right time, he would often become overwhelmed. Imagine if technology could be used to provide support sooner for everyone everywhere. At university, AJ was offered a chance to sign up for a mobile mental health care service. The service helped AJ track his moods and behaviors using personal information. His phone noticed when his moods and behaviors were changing. And when he needed support, he was referred to online self-care tools specifically suited to his condition and connected with e-therapy when self-care wasn't working and with a medical professional in person when needed. Existing and emerging tech can help to create new ways to 
reconnect people, reducing the lows, and ultimately empowering people like AJ to reach their full potential. However, it has not been scaled for greater impact due to the lack of resources, infrastructure, and a human-centered understanding of how this can be done effectively and ethically. Imagine if digital mental health care access could be improved across the world and technology-supported mental illness prevention, prediction, and treatment services could be available to all, including people like AJ. If you want to learn more about how this can be done, you can read our report, Empowering 8 Billion Minds, Enabling Better Mental Health for All via the Ethical Adoption of Technologies. Well, thank you very much, and uh, that's uh, pretty much uh, my presentation. All right. Hey, thanks. This is great. So uh, just a reminder, we'll open this up uh, on the chat box uh, for uh, comments or uh, questions here. Let me let me just um, start off uh, first is that I guess one of the things that's come up in this field and of AI specifically is that, and, and actually maybe mental health, is that one, we know we have like this huge growing problem in terms of mental health problems, yet, and then the interest around AI is just, exponentially growing and the technology is exploding, but there are these concerns about like, you know, how how can we make sure that the evidence base of what to use when or how should things be approached be done? And because uh, the, the, the pressure of the problem is growing, the technology is out there and there's a, there's a huge risk, it seems like, of, of putting something out there that uh, may get an answer, it, it may just be the wrong answer, especially when if someone, you know, sees something that makes sense, you know, predicting depression and be able to act on it. Um, what, what do you think is, what's the systematic approach about this? Like what would, what, how, how should, what should be the threshold uh, for evidence to say uh, anything's worthwhile? No, it's a fantastic question. Um, and I, I think the FDA struggled with it. Other agencies have struggled with it. And, you know, uh, one bad line of code, you know, can cause harm. So uh, it's not a trivial issue. There are, there are actually more ways now to get bad care through apps than there are ways to get good care through apps. Uh, so I, I really think that we should separate the apps and the programs into two categories, like the FDA has done, which are sort of the low-risk apps, um, you know, if you're just sort of measuring something but not claiming to make a diagnosis, not claiming to sort of treat something, then those probably don't need pre-market uh, registration and go, go through the kinds of uh, double-blind, two RCTs, et cetera. Um, you, you probably need to do less rigorous studies, but I certainly anything that claims to make a diagnosis or treat we, I think we, they need to have the same standard as we should with a drug, uh, two randomized trials that can replicate uh, each other. And a lot of times um, the data are not transparent. Uh, most apps have not published anything or not revealed anything. So uh, I, I think there needs to be proactive regulation and governance. That's the only way. Otherwise, it's a wild west out there, much like the nutraceutical industry.
one of the things that uh, we want to do is to develop a checklist. Now, the FDA is obviously not going to develop necessarily a checklist, but if we can develop two types of checklists, one is uh, ethical sort of a checklist in terms of transparency, in terms of data practices, privacy, uh, one checklist that, you know, uh, every, anyone who's reading the terms of service of an app, uh, they should be able to tell whether that app has been designed to meet all of the criteria in this checklist. And the second is an evidence checklist of some sort, you know, like we use for uh, randomized trials. Uh, we need some kind of a checklist. And if we can, uh, if, if the government, FTC, or somebody can say, okay, every app has to have these two checklists built in to their, you know, uh, product information, then that would be one way that consumers can easily tell. The other is, of course, an independent body has to review every single app, and that's impossible because, you know, just in mental health alone, there are like 15,000 apps. Right. Well, so, and then I guess one other question for you on this um, related issue is how do you think things should be approached at least um, uh, because of, uh, uh, you know, the methods themselves, they get better, you know, with more and more data, and the and that it can be a strength, but that can alter the the um, technology and the modeling, and when does it you know, become a so-called a new product? So like in drugs, the formulations are kind of fixed. Yeah. Um, in devices, there is a life cycle management that's uh, more continuous um, and based on predicate. In this space, it's kind of an interesting area where, uh, you know, the first hundred or a thousand um, people using AI technology um, it may be very different than the the hundred thousandth uh, person. Yeah, no, hundred. I completely agree. And you know, if some of these technologies, like for example, if we're using AI to monitor suicide, should we get consent? And should this consent from subjects be changed every year if technology changes? And what is the threshold for that? And I don't know. In clinical trials, you know, we have developed a threshold for what is a serious adverse event versus what is not, what is a significant protocol deviation versus what is not. And I think we need to have a public-private partnership to develop those thresholds. And they probably are common to all types of, uh, you know, uh, uh, intelligent technologies. Yeah. Let's uh, go to the chat room. Uh, so, Alexis, uh, see if uh, Alexis is on and can... Ryan, uh, comments or questions? Hi, I was just wondering um, how you envisioned AI and machine learning um, advancing the field of Alzheimer's disease, and if you think this could tie in both basic science understanding along with cognitive functioning, um, you know, like looking at cellular neuronal inflammation pathways, for example, along with memory loss and um, the effects on the neural, neuronal network functioning? Well, it's a great question. Um, it has the potential to benefit at every step of the process. You know, at the basic level, uh, I'm just throwing out something. We, we know people have unique genetic profiles. We know people have unique protein and metabolic profiles. Could we create at a patient level a unique gene-protein-metabolism interaction pro uh, profile for that person and then use drug therapy based on that, right? Uh, the same thing with uh, imaging information. We don't use three-dimensional spatial information in anything. Uh, you know, could we use AI to better understand how the disease is affecting the person in the three-dimensional space? And very few people have done that. Uh, and as I showed you, you know, uh, 
ordinary doctors find it very hard to integrate so many pieces of evidence, you know, like let's say whole genome sequencing becomes available to everybody. How do you integrate that in your practice with the clinical history and the imaging and biomarkers and, and metabolomics? And we're going to need some kind of a printout. And then drug discovery, likewise, uh, you know, screening large numbers of drugs and their profiles. And, you know, I think it's going to be used in every level. Uh, and cognitive training, likewise, you know. So uh, we're, there are already people that are doing cognitive training clinical trials that are custom geared to each person. And based on the level of improvement or worsening they're showing, the amount of training they're getting is automatically changed, kind of like what your personal trainer would do for you in the gym. That's amazing. That's great. Uh, why don't we go to Eric uh, next? Uh, yes. Um, yeah. Fantastic presentation, by the way. Um, really great. Thank you. Um, um, about halfway through the presentation, you mentioned uh, a study comparing uh, the same sample of patients who completed uh, the PDHA, an anonymized PDHA, and then the virtual uh, health interviews. Um, do you know if these three interventions or diagnostics were completed in the same order for all patients, or were the patients randomized with respect to the sequence of those, those three interventions, screeners, diagnostics? They were not randomized. I think um, uh, the PDHA was done a couple of days before, and then uh, I think the others were done. They were done within two days of each other, but it was not a random order. Okay, great. I mean, do you think there's possibility of any, you know, learned behavior um, and any bias as a result of that? Well, it's possible, but my bigger issue with that study is you know, the soldiers know that the anonymous survey they're doing in that laboratory is going to remain anonymous because of the IRB and that the virtual therapist is going to remain anonymous. But once the virtual therapist is really put by the military and deployed, will it then remain anonymous or not? That's what they're going to worry, right? So uh, how will their behavior change in the real world? And that's the pragmatic question to me that's of greater interest. Right. Okay. Thank you. Sure. And also, you know, it's interesting. This was a study of women. And so, I mean, uh, and, and women and men tend to sort of reveal different amounts of information. It would be interesting to see how men perform versus women. And men tend to typically be tight-lipped, you know, in, in therapy sessions. Thank you. All right. Good. Uh, let's go to uh, Robert next. Uh, great presentation. Um, can you uh, just help me to understand uh, what you see the roles of stress, exercise, and sleep are in mental health, given what we're learning about the glymphatic nervous system? Uh, and relatedly, how can autonomic data from wearables um, help to explain the variance uh, that we see in mental health symptoms? That's a great question. Uh... I think if there's one variable that we all need, it's for stress, uh, some way to quantify stress. I don't think medicine, you know, doctors struggle. How do you quantify stress? You know, we make a note saying the person's going through financial stress or divorce stress, or we haven't been able to quantify it. And, you know, there are these watches that claim to measure, um, uh, you know, sweat gland impedance and other things, but 
uh, I haven't seen them being fully validated and integrated into the medical system where, you know, you're sort of treating it like a cholesterol or some other variable. So I think that's going to be very important. Uh, sleep, we know, is tied into, you know, pretty much everything, um, you know, so it, it impacts your cognition, your immunity, your mood. Uh, and, and I think the glymphatic system, obviously, we don't have a way, a, a sensor or anything to monitor it, uh, but, you know, there's so many sleep sensors, but, you know, we found just, you know, rating scales are probably just as good. Um, and, uh, I, again, I, I think doctors are still struggling with how to integrate this information because I get patients who come in with their sleep variable data and they dump, like, you know, 30 days of sleep data on me. I don't know what to do with it. You know, I know how to deal with the report that I get from a sleep lab. Um, so I think that's uh, where we're going to need an AI to really pull that together and put it in the form of a simple one-page report. And then that report should also say, here's how this profile affects this person's risk for depression, for Alzheimer's, this, 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 immune function, viral infections, et cetera, because then you can actually begin to know what to do with that data. <laughs> it's interesting. Um, I mean, it is this issue where you could be completely overwhelmed. Um, totally, totally. And so the data deluge is a real thing, and especially on the other side of the coin, which is, you know, um, you really we didn't spend any time talking about uh, burnout um, here, but you know, clinician burnout and um, mental health and how to pick that up here is really important as well, or prevent it through all this the data overload. Yeah, very much so. Well, Fitbit has, you know, 26 million active users. So I wonder if part of the challenge is how do we work with companies like that uh, that have extensive data, you know, tied to spikes in heart rate, for instance, and does that relate to panic attacks or, you know, overall increased heart rate? Is that what people mean when we talk about generalized anxiety? Um, so I, I guess... You know, is it is it the challenge of the technology? Is it the challenge of the system? I think it's both, um, uh, and and also bandwidth. You know, we don't have enough people to take on all these challenges. Um, so, for example, you know, there's a company called Lumos. You've seen all their ads for brain training, so on and so forth. And you know, obviously, you may or may not believe what their uh, brain training claims are. That's separate. But what got me interested in their data is they had data on. 40 million people from 180 countries who had performed uh, games, and, and many of them longitudinal brain training games. So they had cognitive data on these individuals. So I worked with the company. We created a project called the Human Cognition Project, and we administered a health survey to a subsample of 750,000 people. And then we were able to correlate their cognitive data with their health data. And we were actually able to show that you know, there were many, many useful insights that came from this data set. So I think that is the model. Uh, I told you Crisis Text Line has already agreed to put their data available for, uh, you know, public use in a de-identified manner. So to me, the company you suggest, all of those, I think that really should be the model where uh, we set up these public repositories to try to uh, leverage them. Is that data with Lumos? Is that public? Is that a public repository it's not, now? 
it's not public, but you know, if uh, uh, you make a credible request to them, and um, uh, you know, they can, they, they, they may or may not agree to work with you. Now, they've gone through some challenges in the last year or so after some FTC uh, issues, but uh, uh, I, I think if it's a reasonable research request, uh, then I think uh, you know they are open to that. They are working with us right now, where we're doing a cognitive clinical, a randomized cognitive clinical trial. Great. Well, let's uh, see if we can squeeze in Doug. Um, Doug, are you there? Hi, Adrian. Yeah, really excellent, uh, excellent talk and really stimulating. You know, I'm wondering about this issue of uh, sort of using AI or sort of, you know, uh, machine learning informatics at step one and, and getting a good read on risk and trying to have an app come in and, you know, have an individual work with an app or an avatar, but then having someone who's symptomatic, you sort of alluded to it in your talk and also the, the video with AJ, that the next step in care might be an e-therapist or even an in-person visit. You know, so much of what you talked about has been developed in the, in the DOD and military systems, and we had some experience during the, the sort of intense years of the Afghan and, and Iraq conflicts in trying to work with the DOD to get um, apps developed that could then be sort of transmitted if people were highly symptomatic to therapists. And the military, or for instance, like you, you mentioned the USC group, we were working with Skip Rizzo down there to think about the avatar and, and, and then sort of a step care procedure where you'd enter a chat room with a real therapist. The issue in terms of developing a pragmatic trial is you couldn't get through the military, the DOD IRBs. They wanted you to develop the app but not have the ability to have the app contact a therapist. They wanted to put the app out there. I'm wondering if you would comment on this, and, and you're sort of alluding to pragmatic trials. Do you think that there are sort of insurmountable obstacles in some healthcare systems from a regulatory perspective towards developing this research, whereas, say, in, a, in the military sector, for instance, versus the, the the civilian sector where you may be able to say not have the funds to develop a similar app but be able to roll out the trials could you sort of think about this in terms of comparative healthcare systems and the, the sort of optimal um, environment for for the type of pragmatic trials you're, you're describing I think it's a brilliant question uh, I, I have an equally brilliant answer I might turf it to Adrian who's the vice dean for research who, <laughs> who probably knows how to navigate the system better than me but, but, but Adrian, are you in the VA trying to work things out? I'm kidding, but I'm not. You know, so it's, so, it's sort of that type of, yeah. It's a, it's a different world. And I have a perfect answer. Unfortunately, we're just out of time here. <laughs> well, luckily, you're up next week, Adrian, so we'll, we'll, we'll start off with it. I'm kidding. That's right. But, hey, uh, Morali and everyone, thanks again for uh, joining uh, for another great collaboratory grand rounds. You know, very interesting topic. There is going to be a ton of excitement in this field, a lot of challenges for sure, but this is going to be one of the fields that really um, changes dramatically over the months to years here. And Morali, thanks for giving us a great overview and um, how the importance of pragmatic clinical trials will be key here for defining uh, the Evans space. So Thank thanks everyone for joining. Uh, next week we're going to have a discussion um, really about open science and uh, are we there yet? And uh, really want to see uh, kind of give and take of kind of taking um, a, a hard look and, and seeing uh, how we are doing relative to uh, the, um, the the mission that people have stated. So look forward to next week.
Thanks, everyone, and have a great weekend.